within about three days of the paper, the initial paper being out, we saw a page that said Yale proved psychics to be true. So right. despite the best intentions. <laughs> I know. Yep. yep. This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science, as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Ryan Watkins. And I'm Doug Lay. Many people hear voices that aren't really there. It drives some to seek psychiatric treatment, but others are able to make use of it in healthy ways. Today, we're visited by Drs. Al Powers and Phil Corlett. Al is a clinical instructor at Yale University, and Phil is an associate research scientist in the Department of Psychiatry there. In this episode, Powers and Corlett talk about their research into the similarities and differences between these two groups and what the rest of us can learn from their experiences. This episode is sponsored by We Share Science. When researchers are curious about what is happening in science, they go to We Share Science to explore video abstracts uploaded by other researchers. You can search their vast catalog of video abstracts to learn about the latest scientific findings, or you can share your research with the world. Whether your research is in progress or already published at We Share Science, you can share your science and grow your impact. Explore the world's research at WeShareScience.org. Now, back to Parsing Science. Here's Al Powers and Phil Corlett. So I'm Al Powers. I'm a psychiatrist and neuroscientist here uh, at the Yale University School of Medicine. When I got here, um, I hadn't yet decided, kind of unusually, uh, decided who I was going to work with and um, ran across the work that uh, Phil Corlett uh, was doing, who uh, he did this amazing work in how delusions actually start um, by a simple, um, well, not so simple, Phil, sorry, um, <laughs> uh, change in how, um, and, and how we learn about things. And together we crafted this idea that um, maybe we can think about hallucinations in the same way that Phil had been thinking about delusions um, for, for years now. So my name is Phil Corlett, and I'm an assistant professor in the psychology department and the psychiatry department here at Yale University. I got interested in psychiatry uh, and psychology through interacting with a number of different cognitive neuroscientists. So these are people who want to understand how the mind works by studying brain function. I started out this sort of exercise in a really basic way. So I was studying rats and how they undergo Pavlovian conditioning, which is how they pair visual stimuli with the delivery of food rewards. And we were making manipulations in those rats directly in their brains to alter uh, the functioning of a chemical called dopamine. So we could increase dopamine release right after the rat had learned something. And we could make him remember that information much more strongly. And at the same time, I was learning that schizophrenia, uh, which is a very serious mental illness, uh, occurs in about 1% of the population, uh, was happening, uh, w w was associated with excessive dopamine release. And so that gave me the idea that wouldn't it be interesting if some of the symptoms of schizophrenia, like hallucinations and delusions, which Al's already uh, introduced us to, could be reflected uh, in this process of aberrant memory formation. So forming memories that were either too strong or too weak. Chris Mathis is another of the study's authors. Here, Al tells us how he and Phil connected with him on their project. Chris um, is uh, is amazing. So he is um, a guy who used to be at uh, University College London, is now at CISA in Italy. Um, he's a computational neuroscientist. 
um, that came about, um, you know, we were thinking about this, Phil and I were thinking about this as this idea that maybe hallucinations are this overweighting of prior inputs um, compared to incoming sensory evidence. And that was what was causing it. So like your, if perception itself is this marriage between um, between prior expectations, incoming sense, sensory input from your, your eyes and your ears, um, then perhaps um, hallucinations, which are this perception outside of an actual external stimulus, maybe that arises because um, because of an overweighting of, of those prior expectations, uh, kind of overtaking your, your incoming sensory input. And Phil happened to be going to this conference uh, in Europe and um, and contacted. Uh, he happened to be at the same conference as Chris. Right. And they, they hit it off. Um, and and um, and Chris um, agreed to uh, collaborate with us on it. Brian and I asked next about the goals of the team's experiment, as well as what they did to carry these out. We wanted to try and design an experiment that could really show that we could cause hallucinations to happen by increasing people's reliance on their prior expectancies and that we could show that people who hallucinated in their daily lives would also be more susceptible to this sort of an effect. So it was a sort of twofold experiment, really. And, and we went about that by identifying groups of people that heard voices every day in their daily lives um, and by identifying a task that could really emphasize the role of prior expectancies on what we perceive. What we decided to do was to beforehand figure out what people's thresholds for detection were. Um, and we have nice um, kind of, um, you know, mathematically informed ways of doing that. So we used a method called Quest, which is a method for de determining not only what someone's 75% detection threshold is, so the, the intensity of the tone at which they're going to respond, yes, I heard that 75% of the time. Um, but also um, what their psychometric curve actually was. Um, by psychometric curve, I mean, um, if you imagine on the x-axis uh, intensity of the tone and on the y-axis likelihood of saying, yes, I heard it, there's going to be this S-shaped curve. Um, and so if you, uh, if you figure out the slope of that curve um, and uh, kind of where the ends are, you will be able to, you'll be able to figure out and estimate what not only 75% detection is, but also 50%, 25% uh, are. And we wanted to determine those because we wanted to use these values to teach them that there's a tone there, um, but you're not always going to detect it. Um, and so what we did um, was during the, the first part of, um, of the experiment, the first two, three blocks of 12, um, um, the tone was, uh, was always presented at 70, or not always, but most of the time was presented at 75% uh, detection threshold. So it was faint, but definitely detectable. Um, and it was always paired with the with the checkerboard flash, which is our visual stimulus. Um, and then over time, over those twelve blocks, uh, we increased the proportion of trials that were presented at uh, sub threshold values, so at fifty percent likelihood of detection, or even twenty five percent likelihood of detection, or not there at all. Um, and we did that so that the association that we're hoping to build in the early blocks um, could then be kind of seamlessly tested um, as you went along. Um, so, so you, you know, you form that association. Yes, the light is paired with the tone and the, t the light predicts the tone. Um, and then later on, uh, how strong that association is will drive the reporting of the tone, even when it doesn't exist. Um, so in the beginning, we want to teach them the association. And, and at the end, we want to kind of test that association by presenting just the, just the visual stimulus and then seeing whether or not they report the tone that we should, that should be associated with it. 
during the first part, they just had to say yes or no. But in the second part, we actually added something interesting that Phil had implemented previously in some of his other experiments, which was um, they could hold down the response to say how confident they were in their judgment. So it wasn't just saying, yeah, I think I heard it. It was, um, and just saying yes, um, they would just be able, they would be able to say, yes, I heard it. And I'm only one out of five confident that I heard it, or I am five out of five confident that I heard it. And they would press it down. And I, I coded this thing where you have this little um, kind of like a, think about a battery meter. Um, this is five little blocks and it kind of goes up. The longer you hold it, it goes from yellow to red or dark red. Um, and it goes, so then that corresponds to, um, uh, not very confident to very confident. Um, yeah. So that every trial we have a measure of confidence as well. Identifying a reasonable control group who also hear voices, but aren't psychotic must be a daunting prospect. Next, Phil explains how they went about identifying such people. So um, back in the UK, in London, uh, there's a group led by Emmanuel Peters and Philippa Garrity, uh, who study the continuum of odd beliefs, right? So I'm very interested in delusions. There are people out there in the world who have some very unusual beliefs that don't actually count as delusions. So for example, there are people who uh, are part of sort of new age religious movements, um, like Hare Krishnas, for example, or people who believe in crystal healing. And what Philippa and Emmanuel did was design a questionnaire that took all of the delusional beliefs that someone with schizophrenia might report and converted them into sort of more mild versions. So, for example, does it sometimes feel to you as if the CIA are following you or paying you extra attention? Occasionally, now and again. And if somebody endorsed a particular belief on the questionnaire, uh, they were then given three further questions. So how convinced are you that that's true? How preoccupied are you? So how much do you think about that every day? And how distressed are you by that particular belief? And what Emmanuel found, um, and Philippa, by looking at these groups of, of new, new religious uh, followers, um, compared to patients with schizophrenia, was that you could find people out there in the world who had as many unusual beliefs who were as convinced that they were true, who were as preoccupied by those beliefs, but simply just weren't as distressed, right? That was the key difference between the clinical and the non-clinical groups, was that all of the clinical people held their beliefs in a way that was distressing and disruptive to their everyday function. And so we wanted to see if we could find a similar uh, group of people, uh, but for voices, right? For the experience of auditory verbal hallucinations, right? Which is hearing voices inside one's head. Um, when no one else is talking. Conceptualizing such a control group is one thing, but finding them is quite another. We were curious to learn how Al and Phil actually located a group of people who also hear voices, but haven't experienced psychotic episodes. How we found them um, and how we came up with the idea is sort of a, an interesting story. I, I live in, in Cheshire, which is about 20 to 30 minutes outside of New Haven. And I ride the bus every day because I'm British and I don't like to drive on the wrong side of the road. <laughs> and what I noticed was that there were on Whitney Avenue, there are a heck of a lot of psychic uh, stalls and tarot card readers and people with these fluorescent neon signs saying psychics. And I thought maybe these would be a good source of people uh, who would score highly on the sorts of questionnaires that, that Philippa and, uh, and uh, Emmanuel had designed. And maybe these people would be a good source of participants for 
any of our experiments, right? Not just the voice hearing, but but given that I was interested in beliefs too, um, maybe maybe they would be you know uh, a good a good population to study. And so we wanted to try and find a way to reach out to these people, and Google came to the rescue. So we Googled Connecticut psychics, and it turns out that there is a Connecticut psychic association. Um, and we reached out to the director of the association, and he sort of introduced us to this whole new world of beliefs and experiences, uh, groups of people who meet uh, monthly for meetings at different hotels around the state. Um, and Al and one of our RAs, Adina at the time, went along to one of these meetings at, um, on, based on his invitation. And we sort of discussed what we were trying to do. And Al sort of describes this real epiphany moment where... Mm -hmm. We were looking for people who were clairaudient, which is a word that none of us had heard before. And I, I'm sure many of your listeners won't be familiar with either. This is different from clairvoyant, which is having uh, a, an experience in your mind's eye, a vision, if you like. Clairaudient people have auditory messages. And uh, that's how we sort of happened upon this fantastic control group for people who hear voices in their heads. So, so the psychics obviously aren't suffering from schizophrenia. They don't suffer from the sorts of confounds which I'd outlined earlier. Um, they do, however, have uh, pretty frequent auditory hallucinations, which uh, meet many of the same uh, criteria and hit many of the same categories as uh, patients with schizophrenia who hear voices. However, much like Philippa and Emmanuel's control group, uh, this group of people uh, aren't distressed by their voices and interestingly report a degree of control over the experiences that uh, patients were never able to achieve. And so um, through reaching out to this, this group, this organization of people in Connecticut, we just got sort of tuned into this fantastic new idea and this fantastic population. Next, Doug and I asked how Alan Phil screened psychics to determine if they experienced voices that weren't really there and what was asked of them as participants in the study. In terms of how people experience the study, I mean, Al, Al sort of drove this forward, so maybe he'd be the best person to describe that part. Should I hand over to you, Al? Sure. The study itself, you know, was it took place in an imaging scanner. It was a functional imaging scanner. Uh, but the first part of it was this interview with me. Um, right. And... Um, and this kind of makes the the fact that we had this particular non-clinical voice hearing group um, even more striking because my office it was at least in a locked ward on a, in a psychiatric hospital, um, and uh, and we have these people who haven't seen a psychiatrist, don't feel like they need to see a psychiatrist, who function quite well, um, coming in uh, then to my office on a locked ward in a psychiatric hospital to tell me how they're hearing voices. Um, it couldn't have been the most comfortable situation for them, um, but they did it. And not only did they do it, but they also recruited all, you know, much, many of their friends um, uh, to do it. And I think the reason why is that, um, you know, for most of their experiences, they hadn't been taken very seriously um, uh, for, for most of their lives. Most of their professional uh, lives hadn't been uh, taken very seriously in the, uh, by, by anyone who actually wanted to hear about their experiences, one, and also, um, two, uh, to, to, to some degree, validate them. Um, and, uh, and three, um, uh, actually tried to do something with that, that knowledge, uh, to help somebody else. 
So that was uh, that was kind of the the initial experience, which is you know an hour and a half, two hour interview uh, with each of the subjects uh, with me, um, and then uh, then they were scheduled for a separate um, appointment to do the task in the scanner. Um, they were told that we're interested in the parts of the brain that are that are uh, involved in listening, um, and so we'd like to, them to to listen hard <laughs> um, for the the things we're asking them to listen for. Um, and uh, it's, uh, I'm not going to lie and say that this is the most exciting computer game in the world. Um, it, it is a pretty, pretty dull one. Um, but uh, we have reason to believe that everybody was really engaged during it uh, and, tried, and tried their best. Um, we were able to give, get a pretty good exit interview from everyone uh, as well. And um, uh, I, I think they sometimes found it frustrating, but also um, uh, found it to be somewhat rewarding that they got through it. <laughs> There were a couple of times, Al, when, when Al was running the experiment, uh, driving the, the sort of tasks, and the radiographer was driving the scanner, that when people started to feel claustrophobic, I would go in and uh, put on a pair of headphones and, and hold their hands to make sure they stayed in the scanner, because it's uh, such precious subjects and precious data, we really wanted to make sure it happened. That's right. <laughs> Having a sense of how their study was designed and carried out, Ryan and I wondered how the team conducted their analyses and what it was that they found out. So we did the sort of standard vanilla analysis, right? Where you do, when you have brain, when you have brain imaging data, you basically try and align all of the key events in your task with what's going on in the different voxels of the brain, right? So you, you, you generate a model for what you think might explain the signal that you've measured. And that model is usually a series of stick functions, right? The stimulus came on here. The auditory stimulus would have come on here, or maybe it didn't. And this is what the person reported hearing. And that simple analysis yielded a set of regions for what regions were online when people reported hearing tones that weren't present. Then we did, I guess, a computational neuroimaging analysis where we took how much each person weighed their particular beliefs about the task and about the stimuli. So did you think that tones were occurring? Did you believe that tones were being caused by the checkerboards? And did you believe there was any volatility in that relationship? Could that relationship change over time? And we fit each one of those estimates from each subject's behavior to their brain imaging data. So rather than doing the standard analysis, we had this kind of computational analysis. And really sort of uh, pleasingly, I guess, and, and what you might expect is that the uh, the lowest levels of the model, did you believe tones were occurring? Did you believe that tones and checkerboards were paired together, pulled out exactly the same circuit as the standard analysis, right? So the regions that were responding when people were showing conditioned hallucinations were probably doing so because they're representing these different levels of belief. And then the third level, how sensitive are you to changes in the environmental contingencies that ought to make you update your beliefs? that ought to make you start to believe that actually no, no tones are actually being presented. Those were correlated with a different set of regions. So with the hippocampus and the cerebellum, two regions of the brain that are involved first in, in memory formation and memory maintenance, and also in the formation of sort of internal models of the world. That's one of the key parts of the cerebellum, uh, key roles of the cerebellum, if you like. And those two regions um, were different between the, the psychotic groups and the control groups. So if anybody had a diagnosis of psychosis, psychotic illness, 
regardless of whether they heard voices or not, they seem to have a problem engaging those regions and updating their beliefs about the task in light of the new evidence. Whereas the psychics and the healthy controls could engage those regions and could sort of update their beliefs as the task went through. Now that the experimental results of the team's study were clear, we wondered what the implications of their findings might be on future research and clinical practice. The, before we you know, translate this directly to clinical practice, um, we want to make sure that it, um, it does translate <laughs> to, to clinical practice. Um, I think uh, one of the, one of the, there are many different ones we could actually go down on this. And um, one of them is in treatment. So, uh, for example, this tendency to trust your prior beliefs prior, uh, more than your incoming sensory evidence, um, that kind of prior waiting that we identify as being um, troublesome in voice hearers in our experiment, um, that seems to be mediated particularly by the cholinergic system um, and per, uh, perhaps by particular receptors within the cholinergic system. Um, and those um, that system is not, you know, readily or um, or frequently manipulated in people who have psychosis in order to treat their um, their symptoms. Um, so that does actually identify a way we might be able to treat hallucinations uh, in, a, in a completely novel way uh, informed by an experiment like our own. So if you identify the people who do have this high prior weighting, perhaps using uh, some uh, an agent that modulates the cholinergic system uh, might be a new and novel treatment for that particular subgroup. Um, so that could be one way it would translate. Another way is, um, you know, as, as Phil mentioned earlier in summarizing our results, um, we have differences between people who have who hear voices um, and people who don't hear voices, but also uh, people who have a diagnosed psychotic illness and people who don't have a diagnosed psychotic illness. Um, that latter difference, um, I think, could be really informative in identifying the people who will go on to psychosis when they're at high risk of that. Um, so uh, I don't know how many uh, how many of your listeners might know, but schizophrenia and, and psychosis uh, in general um, has uh, what's often called a prodrome phase to it. So just like in, in the, you have the flu, right? Um, and before you do all the you have the chills and the fevers and your nose is running uh, off your face and um, you're feeling absolutely terrible. Um, perhaps you know prior to that you have a period of time in which you're kind of feeling like kind of generally achy or just not quite right. Um, there's kind of attenuated flu symptoms, right? Um, uh, well, psychosis has the same thing where you have a period of time in which um, things are kind of off. Um, you might hear things that other people aren't hearing, but you're not really convinced of that. And maybe it's your, your mind playing tricks on you. Or perhaps you have this general feeling like you're being watched and it's kind of uncanny, but you don't really, and you don't really like it. Um, and it oftentimes distracts you, but you're not quite to the point of frank psychosis. And that's often called the clinical high risk state. It used to be called the prodrome. Um, and when people actually do develop full psychosis, it is still called the prodrome. However, if you have this collection of, of symptoms, it's the odds are you know only about um, only about uh, three or four in ten that you actually will develop frank psychosis. Um, the thing about that is uh, the earlier you intervene in psychosis, uh, the better. The better your general outcomes, the less likely you are to be repeatedly hospitalized, um, the the more likely you're actually able to continue along the developmental trajectory you're on previously. Um, and so we know that earlier intervention matters. Um, but right now we're kind of relegated to intervening as soon as the first psychotic episode happens, which is great and has actually yielded a lot of really good results. But wouldn't it be really great 
if we could actually intervene um, earlier in people who are at high risk of psychosis, who we think because of a task like ours are more likely to go on and develop full and frank psychosis. I think that um, that application is, is particularly promising to me. Right. Can I, can I add to that too, that, um, you know, given that, given what we found with the brain imaging data, that there were differences between uh, people who heard voices and people who didn't, but that there were also differences between uh, people with psychosis versus people without, we think that those particular results might help us devise some new strategies for um, transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is an intervention that was developed here at Yale for hearing voices by uh, Ralph Hoffman, who sadly passed away last year. So what Ralph found was that if you place um, a very strong focused magnetic field over certain parts of the cortex and sort of uh, rapidly alter the, uh, the, the direction of that field, you can induce currents in the, co the cortical regions right underneath where the magnetic field is, is changing. That's uh, just Faraday's law, sort of simple physics. Depending on the pattern of stimulation, you can increase or decrease the activity of particular cells. And what Ralph found was that if you do that in people who hear voices over the parietal cortex, you can, for some people, uh, help their voices. Um, we think that perhaps using a more uh, updated version of transcranial magnetic stimulation or TMS called deep TMS, where you can actually reach deeper uh, below the surface of the skull, we might be able to target the insular cortex uh, to help people with their voices. So we might want to decrease the activity of that region. But we might also more generally want to increase the activity of the cerebellum in patients with schizophrenia and with psychotic illnesses in order to boost their ability to update their beliefs in light of new evidence. And so those are two things that we're hoping to try in the future. Uh, curtailing the aberrant responses of the insula during perceptual inference and boosting the activity of the cerebellum. Hopefully, sort of a two-pronged approach wherein we can help with voices specifically, but also with psychosis more broadly. Competition to publish in the journal Science is very intense. Fewer than 7% of articles submitted are accepted for publication. We were curious to know what Al and Phil thought made their study of interest to the journal. First of all, I think uh, if you don't shoot, you don't score. And we thought we really liked the pattern of findings. We thought that they were really compelling. Uh, we felt like it was a step forward, uh, potentially, for the field, given what we knew about what was already out there and, and where we needed to be. Um, I think from the very, very beginning, I thought that this combination of clinical and non-clinical voice hearers and the involvement of this task that's sort of been around for about a century, but nobody's really studied it excessively or extensively in recent times, at least. Um, so, and then bringing to bear, you know, the sort of state of the art computational technique that really gave us an insight into what was going on when everybody perceives things that aren't present, but also particularly people who hear voices in their heads. Um, so we just thought that it was the combination of revealing something new, um, about voice hearing that everybody had sort of suspected and also giving us some insights into the normal functioning of perception, which everybody I think conceives of as a sort of passive process, right? You're just sort of going around the world and information's incident on your sensory systems and you record that information and you respond to it. And it turns out that 
what we perceive is much more constructive, uh, even if we're not hallucinators, uh, much of what we perceive about the world may well be a sort of controlled hallucination, which other people have kind of suggested in the past, but I think we show some evidence in, in favor of in this paper. So in terms of why science might be interested, I feel like it ticks all of those sort of interesting boxes where uh, it tells us something new about our own condition, has clinical implications, and uses you know really uh, state-of-the-art methods to get us there. Al and Phil's project has been covered everywhere from Nova and the Atlantic to boingboing.net. Doug and I were curious to learn what it was that Al and Phil felt made their studies so compelling. The Yale Press Office did a wonderful job in terms of getting this out there. We were actually really afraid in the first place that our results would be misconstrued, um, that uh, they would be um, somehow twisted to say Yale proves psychics are real, for example, or um, or that all psychics are psychotic, or um, or that all people with psychosis are psychics, um, or or something like that. Uh, there's there's enormous potential for uh, these results to be twisted in a way um, that wouldn't exactly uh, be true to the science. And um, I think uh, in that way, uh, Yale and we were were, were careful. Uh, to get out in front of it and make sure that what we think is actually really important about the study um, was available and and um, and clear to the general public. Although I might add that within about three days of the paper, the initial paper being out, we saw a page that said Yale proved psychics to be true. So right. despite the best intentions. <laughs> I know. Yep. yep. <laughs> Finally, given that hearing voices is more commonplace than we thought, Brian and I wondered if there might be any upsides to having hallucinations. What counts as a disorder or not is sort of a normative uh, claim, right? That uh, I think Neil Seth puts it really nicely that when we perceive something, if everybody perceives the same thing and we all hallucinate the same thing, then we call it reality. Um, uh, and I, I sort of have a, a similar stance here that, that psychotic symptoms, both hallucinations and delusions, are a sort of departure from this kind of consensual reality. Um, I wouldn't ever be uh, as bold as to claim that hallucinations are good for everybody, um, but certainly our psychic group seemed to be pretty well adjusted and high functioning and very happy and even to have flourished from the experience of voice hearing. Despite experiencing it as very distressing at first, they learned techniques and approaches to, to cope and stances to take with regards to their voice experiences. And they embedded them in a sort of spiritual framework that helped them contextualize the experience and connected them to a group of other people with similar experiences. All, all of those things are things that can be quite challenging for people with psychotic illness to do, um, but they're certainly things that we hope to be able to help them do better in the future inspired by some of the things that we've learned from the psychics. I want to be very careful and very clear, though, that I don't think everybody with schizophrenia is a psychic or that telling them that they're psychic is is a helpful thing to do. But, you know, there are practices that people engage in um, on the route, on the sort of trajectory to becoming a clairaudient psychic that we may be able to learn from and, and may even be able to harness and teach some of our patients to do. And, and Al and I are hoping to do that in the future. That was Al Powers and Phil Corlett. Their paper, Pavlovian Conditioning-Induced Hallucinations Result from Overweighting of Perceptual Priors, 
was published in the journal Science, along with Chris Matthies. You'll find a link to their paper on parsingscience.org, along with other material that they discussed during the show. Next time on Parsing Science, we're visited by Dr. Alice Gorman. She'll discuss her research into the archaeology of human 60-year exploration of space. People also relate just to that isolation and loneliness and being far away and having all of their systems gradually shut down until one day they fall silent. We hope that you'll join us again.